All right, well, let's just go ahead and get started. Welcome everyone. This is the first in our three-part series, Torah in a Time of Plague. This series is in large part, um, at least tonight's, tonight's um, installment, is in large part on this wonderful new book by um, a rabbinit, a, a rabbi, um, Aaron Lieb Smokler, who runs the uh, spiritual direction program at Maharat Yeshiva, the only Orthodox Yeshiva for women ordaining female. They can choose whether they want to be called Maharat or Rabbah or Rabbi. Um, she's a wonderful scholar, also um, works at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality and edited this brand new compendium, Torah in a Time of Plague, which really frames the current uh, moment the, this horrible pandemic we've been living through the past 18 months frames it in the context of plague throughout history as experienced by the Jewish community. Why study the Jewish response to plague? Are we, by the way, um, is my, can you just give me a heads up? Can you see me right now? Give me a thumbs up. Everyone can see me. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. So why study the Jewish response to plague? This in the, is in the words of the editor, Erin Lee Smokler. She says that plague rattles our very, be our very beings. It shakes us from complacence mocks our sense of safety, it can also cause death. Not only the death of bodies, but also the collapse of internal worlds. Jewish history, she says, is anchored in collective loss and it is characterized by collective resilience. So there in, in our history, in the history of Jewish community and plague, are resources that we might draw upon to find our grounding once again. I'll say for me, studying this book, studying the history um, of plague in the Jewish community throughout time has given me hope. It's given me strength to know that this is something in, in plagues even more virulent, virulent than our own, than COVID-19, um, that our community has lived through, has survived through, and has, has thrived through. So in her words, The sages offer an alternative, an alternative to being mired in despair. They say that we can step back into life to build, to feast, to celebrate, to seduce, and to do so in ways that contain loss while also retaining it. The rabbi's response, Judaism's response to plague, to catastrophe in general, is not to sweep it under the rug, it's not to forget about it. Our response to trauma, to trauma is to retain it, but to contain it, to not let it take up the entirety of our emotional experience, not let it distract us, bring us down for generations, but at the same time, not to let it go, to keep it as part of who we are, as part of our cultural memory. Got it. Thank you going to hide this. So 
what are we going to talk about tonight? So we're going to talk a little bit about plague in the Torah. There's probably about 10 that you may be very familiar with. Um, we're going to talk about what causes plagues and how in the Torah and how should we respond? How did they respond in the Torah? How should we um, respond today? And how have our um, ancestors from the times of the Torah until now, how have they responded to plague? Um, and then why? Why respond that way? Not just in terms of health and science as we know today, but what did our ancestors believe was an efficacious response to plague? That's just a brief overview of everything we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm going to stay on the Zoom afterwards for questions. Um, so any of you joining us on Zoom, all of you in person, um, if you have questions, comments, we will definitely have time for that at the end. And then um, to all of you who will maybe someday in the future be watching this on Facebook, um, we welcome your continued interaction with us, whether in the chat um, while you're watching it, or hopefully come to our very next installment um, a few weeks from now of Torah in a Time of Plague. So let's jump right in. Plague in the Torah. Of course, we know that there are at least 10 plagues. Those we read about um, a few times a year when we uh, come across it in the Torah portion, when we talk about it on our, in our, around our Seder table. Um, this is a rendering of the 10 plagues in Egypt. Um, and there are various reasons why plagues exist in, in the Torah. Um, the first, I, I'll contend, is to demonstrate God's might. The second is to punish, to punish people for wrongdoing, for doing something that God doesn't want. And the third is to change human behavior. So these are all kind of go, the, the last two definitely go together. Okay, so what are, let's get specific now. What are these examples of um, plague in the Torah? We have the 10 plagues, only one of which is really, or maybe two of which um, are what we would think of as plague, as an illness that afflicts human beings. Um, and I'm gonna contend that, that the, the rationale behind that, which we'll talk about more in a minute, is to demonstrate God's might, right? We, God wanted Pharaoh, to change Pharaoh's mind. Um, but how is God gonna get Pharaoh to change Pharaoh's mind? By demonstrating how powerful God was. Now Rashi, in Rashi's commentary on, on the Torah, on why God um, made the plague so severe, he says that it wasn't just to change the mind of Pharaoh, but in the future, once the Israelites were freed from Egypt and were free people, God wanted the, the Israelites, the, the um, antecedents to the Jewish people, to know how mighty and powerful God was. So if we saw how, what God did to the Egyptians when the Egyptians disobeyed God, how then, when God gives us a commandment, could we possibly want to disobey God? We know what the consequences would be. Um, 
And then in terms of influencing or changing human behavior, like I said a second ago, God wants Pharaoh, famously what Moses says, let my people go. God wants Pharaoh to let, let God's people go. And therefore, um, the plagues were a path, a tool um, for changing that behavior on, on the behalf of the Egyptians. Another plague you might not be quite as familiar with comes from last week's Torah portion, um, or what, two weeks ago's Torah portion, um, from Lech Lecha. So this is an interesting story they don't normally teach us uh, about in religious school, at least uh, I teach eighth grade, it hasn't come up quite yet in our, in our class. Abram, and uh, wasn't quite yet, Abraham, he was still Abram at this point. Abram um, and Sarai go down to Egypt because of a famine in the land of Canaan. They got to eat. But Sarah, or Sarai at this point, is a very pretty woman. Um, and Abraham is worried that if they go down together and the Egyptians think that Abram is Sarah's husband, not Sarah, uh, well, let's just stop there. If, if they think that Sarah is Abram's husband, what are they going to do? They're going to kill Abram and they're going to take Sarah and have their way with her because she's a beautiful woman. Thank God times are, are different now. But so Abram says to Sarah, thinking this could happen, Sarah, um, please pretend that you're my sister. Apparently, actually, they were half sisters, according to the half siblings, according to the Torah, um, which is kind of interesting. We, we're not going to go into that tonight. But he says, pretend that you're my sister, and that way they, will be they won't kill me. So they go down to Egypt, tell everyone, hey, I'm Sarah. Hey, I'm Abram. This is, you know, we're siblings. And Sarah's so beautiful, Pharaoh himself takes Sarah into his chamber to be his wife. What happens? God intervenes, God intercedes, and brings a plague onto the whole um, royal court of Egypt to stop, um, excuse me, to stop Pharaoh from having intercourse, from consummating the marriage with Sarah. Brings this plague upon the house of Pharaoh. Um, why? as punishment to maybe as punishment, maybe to change behavior, right? Maybe it's to punish uh, Pharaoh. We don't, God doesn't provide the rationale, but maybe it's to punish Pharaoh for even thinking about taking Sarah as his wife. Although clearly, if you read the story, it certainly doesn't seem like it's Pharaoh's fault um, or just to stop Pharaoh from consummating the marriage, from getting in between uh, Sarah and Abram. Another plague I want to talk about, and this actually has implications, um, direct implications for how the Jewish people have dealt with plague over time, is the plague that happens right after Korach's rebellion. So um, I'll go ahead and skip to that. I'm not going to read quite the whole thing yet, but Korach is, um, and his followers were Israelites wandering in the desert with the rest of the tribes. They were um, part of the lineage that conceivably had a claim on the leadership of the Jewish people. Um, 
They were just like Aaron and Moses had a claim to leadership, probably the best claim because God appointed them. Um, Korach and his followers were a rival group that came from a similar lineage and conceivably could have been leaders of the people. So they staged this rebellion. What happens to them? God opens up the earth, swallows all of um, Korach and his followers. Not a great day to be a follower of Korach. And um, boom, we think it's over. But in fact, it's not over because there's still many Israelites that apparently wanted to rebel against Moses and Aaron and thereby rebel against God. So what happens? God brings a plague, a horrible plague that kills thousands of people um, upon the Israelites. And this is what happens. This is how the Israelites stop this plague. I'll, I'll read it from the screen. It says, um, Moses said to Aaron, take the fire pan and put on it the fire from the altar. So this is um, holy fire that they were offering up to God. It says, add incense. What was incense made of? Ketoret um, samim, um, like we smell um, on, on um, Havdalah, we bisamim, right? So we smell spices. The, the incense was made of various nice smelling spices that they thought would rise up to God and um, make God in a good mood. Because who, when you smell something, my mom's here, hey mom, um, every time I walk into her office at Temple, she has a very nice candle burning um, and it smells good. So makes me in a better mood. Same, hopefully the Israelites said, same with God. So um, they, they add incense and, and they take it quickly to the community and make expiation for them. Um, offer this incense on their behalf, for wrath has gone forth from God. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, took the, the flame and the incense as Moses had ordered, and ran to the midst of the congregation where the plague had begun among the people. So what, is, what does Aaron do? He put the incense, uh, he put on the incense and made expiation for the people. He stood between the dead and the living until the pain, the, until the plague was checked. So how does Aaron stop this plague? They offer incense. God seems to like it. Plague's over. God ends the plague. We'll come back to that. Before we move on, I want to ask you to think for just a moment. All of these reasons um, behind plague seem to our modern conception a little bit problematic. Why would God bring down a plague? Why would God bring down COVID um, to demonstrate God's might? Seems a little uh, not, not the kind of God we want to believe in. Um, to change human behavior, to punish us, um, or to punish us. Do any of those seem like legitimate reasons why God if we believe in a God that, that intervenes in the world, why God would want to bring down a plague upon the people. So uh, uh, while I'm continuing, I want to ask you to think about our, let's give those the benefit of the doubt, even if at first um, hearing they seem ridiculous or seem problematic, might any of them be a legitimate um, could we argue that some of them are, might be a legitimate reason for God to bring down a plague? We'll, we'll get back to that, and, and I definitely want your thoughts on that um, in, in a few minutes when we, when we discuss. 
So I want to get beyond now the Torah and plague in the Torah and talk about how um, in the course of Jewish history, our people have responded to plague. And there's really two, um, two distinct sets of action or courses of action that they took. One, the first is purely practical. So um, when there's an epidemic, oh, by the way, this is from the Talmud, from the Babylonian Talmud, from the tractate Baba Kama. Um, it says, when there's an epidemic in the town, keep your feet inside your house. I'll actually, I'm going to continue um, reading you the full citations. Very interesting. So it says, um, if there is a plague in the city, gather your feet. That is, what, what does it mean to gather your feet? To limit the time you spend out of the house. Um, as it is stated, this is actually um, from the plagues in Exodus, um, when God tells them, the Israelites, not to exit their house during the plague. It says, and none of you shall go out of the opening of his house until morning. That's from Exodus 12. Um, and so it says, there's a bunch of biblical citations, um, but it says that at a time when there was plague, Rava, who was one of the early um, Talmudic rabbis, says Rava would close up the windows of his house, as it is written, for death has come up, up into our windows, from Jeremiah. So even in Talmudic times, even in uh, 1400 to 1600 years ago, they had a sense that plague was somehow communicable among people, between people. And in response to that knowledge, they took this very practical view that what do we do to ward off plague or in response to plague? We stay in. You know, you don't have to wait for the CDC to tell you to socially distance. All you got to do is read the Talmud, right? But um, one part of this practical perspective, and we'll see why in a moment, is that implicit in this argument to stay in, to try to escape the plague, they are not blaming the plague on God. As um, scholar Shaul Magid argues um, in an in a interesting essay in here, he says, in order to take that view, you have to view that plague is not the will of God, but that it's arbitrary, right? Because if the plague was the will of God and you're doing everything you can to survive it, then you're evading the will of God. So from this point of view, the plague is arbitrary. But another view, and I would say this is um, especially, especially in practice, even if not written in the Talmud, um, this over the course of history becomes the predominant view of plague. Why does plague exist? Because of our sins. We have a covenant that's based on the idea of covenant, right? We're in covenant with God. If we fulfill the mitzvot, God will bless us. If we don't, God will punish us. So if God's punishing us, what must it be because of? Our sins, according to this view. And so if you take that view, your response, the way that you respond to plague is necessarily different. What would that different response look like? So this um, book right here, you can see on the right side of your screen, this is actually um, a prayer book written in the plague um, that afflicted a certain region of um, Italy. I believe it was in um, Umbria. 
but ended up affecting Venice as well. Um, it ended up affecting much of Italy. This is from 1630 and 1631. And this prayer book was written by a community leader and rabbi named Abraham Catalano. And um, it's called, if you, can, if you can read Hebrew and you know Hebrew, you see it's called Tefillah Lizman Shalotavo, a prayer for the time, may it not come, of plague. So even in the title of the prayer book, it's saying, um, God forbid we ever need it, although this was written in a time where it was needed. Um, here are prayers for plague, but God, please God may, may they not come. So just a little bit about this poor soul, Abraham Catalano, um, before we start, before we get into his prayer book, um, it, this essay says, as he reports over the course of Olam HaFuch, um, which was the title of, of his store, his book or his um, re recounting of, of his experience, Olam HaFuch, for your, you Hebrew speakers out there, um, you know HaFuch means turned upside down. So the work is called um, The World Upside Down. And it says his household, his own household suffered immensely from the outbreak. Um, Catalano's wife and four of his six children died in the plague. A son, Moshe, survived by, take, by taking refuge in court. And a daughter, Perla, survived in Padua. And if, we, if you read on, and I do highly recommend this book, um, you'll see that in, in the course of um, just a month, he left, he lost, um, I believe, four of those people back to back to back. Um, really just hard to imagine. Um, but so what does he say? What is the liturgical response of this community, the Italian Jewish community in the, in the 1630s? They have a two-pronged liturgical response. What's liturgy? It's written down prayers. So what are the prayers that they say to try to um, stop the plague. The first is called the Pitum HaKetoret, which is very interesting. So the Pitum HaKetoret is a um, literary reenactment of Aaron's response to the plague that we just read um, after Korach's rebellion. What did Aaron do? Uh, um, well, we're outside. It's, uh, I'm sure that all of you who aren't here, who are watching online can see some strange noises happening, uh, but we're good. So um, they reenacted this scene from the book of Numbers that Aaron, said Aaron saved the community by offering this incense. So those of you who are familiar with the Yom Kippur liturgy, you might know that um, every year on Yom Kippur in the Avodah service, which we actually have part was taken out of the reform liturgy for a very long time is now uh, reappeared in our new Moxor, our new high holiday prayer book, Mishkan HaNefesh. And in this one service, the Avodah service, it reenacts um, maybe according to scholars, somewhat imaginatively um, the temple service on Yom Kippur, which was the only time that the name of God, right? We, in Judaism, we often say we're not allowed to say the name of God. That's why we say, uh, we don't say um, Adonai. We say Hashem because God forbid we take the name of God in vain. But actually Adonai isn't the name of God. That's a substitute for yud heh vav -Hey, 
which was only said once a year by the high priest on Yom Kippur during the Avodah service. If they said it another time, uh, they thought every, that you would die immediately or be cursed in some way. So this um, is very interesting to me, this pitum hakatoret, this idea of um, because we couldn't offer the incense sacrifice in the temple as it once was, the, the, what we can do to have the same effect is to li uh, literarily reenact the, this ritual um, by reading about it, which is the same thing we do on Yom Kippur. So very interesting. Um, other parallels with Yom Kippur, uh, the, much of the other liturgy was the Yidui, the confession, and the Achet, the, all the confessions that we say on Yom Kippur. Um, and unique to this, although also parallel with the high holidays, is Slichot, which are penitentiary, penitentiary prayers, um, asking God for forgiveness. But there was one specifically written for the plague, and I want to read you a couple of them, or just a, a snippet from them. Um, before I do, the reason why they had this liturgical response, this um, asking for forgiveness as a way to solve plague, was because they thought precisely the reason why they were be befallen by this plague was because of something they had done, because of their sins. So if we sin, we ask God for forgiveness, maybe God will remove the plague. So just a, a little snippet. Um, although we have sinned and disobeyed, we hold yet our ancestors' merit in our hands. Please do not change your manner with us, and may you quickly bring forth your healing. Illness, pestilence, affliction, befit the comfortable and the amused, but not a nation that is tired and weary, whose days are short and bitter. Um, and so the, the author of this article says that, um, points out that all of these notions of asking for forgiveness are communal. Just like on Yom Kippur, when we say we have sinned, we have sinned before you, it's not, um, the, our confession is not individual, it's communal. So too, because plague affects the whole community, it doesn't affect um, just individuals. And it's not necessarily because of individual sins, but because of communal sins. And so they pray for um, forgiveness collectively as well. Let's, oh, one thing that I also think is fascinating. In, the Ital in this plague, the Italian plague of 1630, um, they thought that it was, and, and we have the same thing going on today in Orthodox minyanim, in Orthodox prayer, in order to be efficacious, the most efficacious is heard by God, we need a minion. We need 10 people to pray. Um, and so they during this plague, they recruited people to pray on behalf of the community. Not everybody was required to pray, but at least 10 people. Who did they choose? This is really interesting. They chose unmarried men because they thought, God forbid, if one of the unmarried men dies, well, he, has, he doesn't have dependents, so it's not as big of a deal if this unmarried man, man dies, you know, God forbid. Um, and secondly, they either pray, they have these communal prayers either in the courtyard of the synagogue because they thought that a virus or, or plague was not transmitted as much in the open air or in the, the balcony of the synagogue, the women's section, which was much more open air. 
So they even then, you know, it took uh, it took the CDC um, and all of our government scientists months to say uh, actually, in fact, this is transmitted um, airborne. They had a sense, and certainly uh, germ theory was not a thing back then, and obviously they didn't know exactly what was going on. But it is fascinating that even then, 400 years ago, they had a sense that um, the close without airflow, you were more likely to pass on um, and infect other people. Really interesting. Okay, what's going on with these weird masks? So give me one second, because um, my audio is on here and it's really distracting. Yo, feet. Okay, these weird masks, right? For all of you um, who, you brave souls who saw our kind of ghoulishly terrifying um, poster that we put together that Anna brilliantly put together for this class. Um, it's an Italian plague mask that uh, I'll just actually go back to the very first slide. Looks scary, right? Italian plague mask. Um, what's going on with it? Why does it look like a Muppet um, in a leather suit? So this long nose, is actually, um, actually, I'll just read it. This is from National Geographic. Plague doctors filled their masks with theriac, a compound of more than 55 herbs and other components like viper flesh powder, cinnamon, myrrh, and honey. Delorme, who's the doctor that invented these, um, he thought that the beak shape of the mask would give the air sufficient time to be suffused by the protective herbs before it hit plague doctor, oh, before it hit their nostrils and lungs. So interestingly, um, they had this notion that it was airborne and that it could be filtered by herbs um, and that that would decrease the, their likelihood of getting the virus or the bacteria virus, whatever the plague was caused for um, in that case. But I think that it's a fascinating parallel between the Israelites, and then later the Italians, and apparently that was representative of all um, Jewish response to plague, the idea that um, burning herbs somehow played a role in um, mitigating or ending plague. Interesting parallel. Okay. We talked about Jewish, we talked about plague in the Torah. We talked about perhaps why uh, plague existed in the Torah, a few reasons. We talked about Jew Judaism's response to that plague and the fact that the response differs whether or depending on what you think God's role is in the plague. Let's talk for a minute about contemporary theological reflections on plague. What is God's role in plague? Um, some people think that it's divine intervention. I just want to read you a brief snippet. Divine intervention that this plague is God's doing. Oh, so. Um, if, if you think this plague is divine intervention, I kind of mentioned this a minute ago. It says, um, for Talmudic thinkers and later halachists, later rabbis, um, flight from the city in a plague might represent a rejection of the divine plan and would be a worthless 
attempt to escape fate, um, therefore saying, if this is God's plan, what, what choice do we have? If this is God's doing, it's God's doing, nothing we can do about it. Um, as we talked about before, other people who take this position say, God is doing this because of um, something that we did. Or maybe it's just, as we say a lot of times um, in Judaism, um, more, a more traditional perspective on theodicy, which is the idea um, of why do bad things happen to good people. Sometimes things are just part of God's plan and they're beyond our comprehension. Maybe something's part of God's plan. Um, oftentimes you'll hear people say, um, when something horrible happens to them, well, um, I don't know why this happened, but it's part of God's plan, um, and I just want to accept it. I have faith in God. Um, so some people take that position. Fascinatingly, Pope Francis takes, uh, in 2020, came out with a similar uh, position. He said that COVID was, in fact, nature's response for ignoring ecological crisis. He said, God through nature, or nature through God, or whichever way you want to take it, is um, responding to our failure to take care of the planet. Is it a God is punishing us kind of thing? Or is it saying that our actions, um, our overpopulation, our crowding, our um, destruction of, of ecosystems that otherwise would have mitigated something like this from happening. Um, so is it a divine thing or is it just a kind of natural response to um, the way that we treat the planet? Let, we can interpret Pope Francis's view however we want. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely interested in, in everybody's perspective on that. But I want to talk about a Jewish idea. Uh, this was articulated by one of my teachers, um, Rabbi Rachel Sabbath Beit Halachmi, um, who's now the new uh, rabbi at a new synagogue in um, Baltimore. But she was a professor at Hebrew Union College and actually was on the, I believe, on the faculty that ordained Rabbi Feivel when he was at Hartman Institute. She was at Hartman. So um, one of the leading scholars uh, of theology and covenant today. She says that um, you could take the perspective that this is about biology, not theology, that um, a virus exists in the world, God has nothing to do with it, that God and uh, that the world operates according to this um, Hebrew term, olam kemin hago noheg. So any of you Hebrew speakers uh, might be able to translate that olam is the world. Kaminhag, um, what's a minhag? A minhag is a tradition um, or it's a way that things operate. Like um, in our temple, for example, the minhag is to stand during the Shema, but not every um, synagogue does that. Traditionally, actually you sit, but it became part of the reform minhag to stand because we said, the Shema is our most important prayer, so we should stand for it. Um, but that's a minhag, not a halakha Allah. But uh, that's a tangent. Olam kaminhago noheg. Noheg is behaves. So the world behaves um, as it what the the 
maybe idiomatic translation is the world behaves as it was set in motion to do, as it has been doing. And so under this idea of olam kaminhago noheg, um, God set the world in motion, but that now the world operates according to natural law. That God maybe created a world that, that exists as we know it, but that now God doesn't intervene, whether God can or just doesn't is maybe another question which we can talk about, but um, that now that the world is set up as it is, it is, a, it is how it is. And, and the fact that viruses and bacteria exist, God doesn't necessarily want that to happen, but uh, the ways of the world are the ways of the world and we got to live. With it. So um, these are kind of three, two and a half or three different theological takes on what causes this virus. Where is God? I think for many of us over the last 18 months um, might've asked this question, might've said, where is God in all of this? Um, how could God, and it's the same question maybe we ask about the Holocaust, how could a loving God let this happen? Now, there's actually a very interesting essay in here about the difference between something like the Holocaust and something like a plague to occur, because a Holocaust is caused um, by human beings, whereas a plague is caused by nature. So it's a different theological question of how could God allow humans to... to um, do such a thing versus how could natural law do such a thing? But still, if you believe in a God that rewards the good and punishes the bad, or you believe in a God that um, hates to see the suffering of God's creatures and a God that could intervene, it, bring, it brings up a question of why do plagues exist? And this idea of olam kaminhago noheg, that God created the world and set it into motion, but now doesn't or can't intervene, is a, I think, an interesting framework, and maybe for some of you, a compelling framework um, to explain how God might exist, and yet why plagues still happen. So that's God's role in plague. What is our role? I wanna read a um, snippet from Arthur Green, Rabbi Arthur Green, Rabbi Dr. Arthur Green, who um, is the, probably the foremost, or one of the foremost scholars on mysticism and Judaism alive today. Um, I actually wrote quite a bit of my senior thesis at HUC at, in rabbinical school about his theology. Um, and so this is kind of unrelated to that, but he wrote this just for this book. So let's see what he says. He says, the microbes were here long before us. They are as much a part of the web of life as we are. And we need to accept that reality. But the danger of such calamities increases as we so rapidly destroy the habitats of other creatures, as we burn down rainforests, consume wild life forms, and cross those boundaries within which humans have so long found our place. So what does he believe in terms of where do we fit in? Where does God fit in? It certainly seems that He's of the opinion, not of victim blaming per se, but of, in a way, maybe not we brought this on ourselves, but our actions contributed, human actions contributed to um, this catastrophe. 
human action, according to him, at least I would say from this uh, little thought, contributed to it. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of where humans fit in. I want to take one more quote from uh, Rabbi Rachel Sabbath Beit Halachmi, um, one of my teachers. She says, yes, God is the creator of the universe, but God has created a world which will follow its natural course. Olam kamin hago noheg. The world operates according to natural law that God set into motion. When we human beings act ethically, she says, in partnership with God, we can limit the impact of crises and decrease human suffering. So whereas Art Green says it's because of us, or at least in part because of our actions that created this plague, she says so too is it up to us to fix it. And that if God set the world in motion but doesn't intervene, that in fact it is us. It is human beings who must work as partners with God to fix it. So I want to close with just one, um, one quote, one idea from her that I thought was very nice. She says that um, God may be, I already read this. Yes. So the, the very next sentence after God may be all powerful as the creator of the universe, but God created a world that functions according to natural laws. Olam kamin hago noheg. I love this. While prayers and Jewish teachings might offer support or even hope, right now we need doctors and vaccines, not rabbis and sermons. We need doctors and vaccines, not rabbis and sermons. So while maybe that would put me out of a job, I think her, her message about our ability to work in partnership with God is so clear. The pandemic exists, no matter the cause. But according to her, and according to this line of thinking, God's not going to intervene to stop it. But the only way God can is by us being God's partner. It's through us as God's partner that we can change the world. And that hopefully someday soon through all of our effort, we can end this plague. So thank you all for being here. I want to give a quick commercial about our um, next two upcoming classes uh, before we take some discussion. The first one um, will be in just a few weeks. Uh, will be on the plague and anti-Semitism, blame the Jews. Unfortunately, throughout history, when plague happened, oftentimes Jews got blamed for it. Uh, the bubonic plague, most prominently. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, among other things, next time. And then finally, uh, depending on how much, how, how everything goes, um, might change this timeline a little bit, but I want to talk about the plague in our backyard, the yellow fever epidemic of the 1870s. There were two, one in 1873, one in 1879 that struck this community. And Rabbi Max Samfield, our Temple Israel rabbi, was really um, a true hero um, and did such sacred work ministering to the sick and burying um, really countless of our members and, uh, and non-Jews 
um, in this community. So we'll talk about that as well. Thank you all for being here. I'm gonna end the presentation. Um, all of you here on Zoom, uh, please stay on. All of you in person, uh, please stay here if you want for a few more minutes and we'll discuss. All right, so any thoughts, reactions, questions? Please. Rabbi? Yes. I'll go ahead and put in my two cents. Please do. Uh, okay, from the beginning, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, an atheist, although some people might accuse me of that, but uh, I don't think that God, at least as I perceive God, doesn't have time to meddle in the affairs of humans. I mean, there's got to be billions of other sentient creatures amongst all the other billions of galaxies, amongst all the other billions of universes, in including maybe even the alternate universes that may exist on a, that plane that we don't even perceive. Uh, and God doesn't give a fritter about what happens to us. And it's pretty much random. But if you do the wrong thing, you're very likely to run up against some wrong circumstances. But if you do the right thing and make a habit of it, then most likely, not always, but most likely God, life will go better for you. And so that's, that's kind of what I think the Torah teaches, is if you do the right thing, not always, you won't always win. But more likely than not, things will turn out better for you. Very nice, Tom. So thank you for sharing. Just to bring that into a context of Torah or expand upon the Torah you brought up, I think the one way you could describe that point of view is what goes around comes around, right? Um, if you do good things, hopefully you'll be rewarded in life. Even if God doesn't intervene directly to reward you, maybe good, good things come to those who wait, I guess, but also who are good people. Um, but also, I think it's important to note that in Judaism, there, that's not the only reason to do a mitzvah. Of course, you could say one reason is because God said so. But another reason is because if you believe that the mitzvot are really based on ethics, um, at least the mitzvot that matter most are ethical mitzvot, treating our neighbor well, uh, taking care of the poor and the orphan and the stranger, then the fact that your actions can make a difference towards them, um, that has value in and of itself. Not just because of what your actions will get you, but because of how your actions can positively impact other people. But yeah, great thought, Tom. Anybody else? Anybody here? Anybody at home? Well, I'll just put my two cents in about plagues. Okay, please. And, and that's simply that, you know, we're going through one right now. And that the um, advice they gave way back when is basically the same advice. Stay in your house. That's why we're on Zoom. So that we can interact with everybody and still stay safe. And we have had 
two vaccines plus our booster already, and we wear masks wherever we go. But at 70 years old, we're not going to take chances. Just like they said, keep your feet in your house. I mean, you know, we go out and we ride our tricycles out in the open air. And we might come and meet with you one of these weeks because I see you're outside. So we might do that. But um, we're being very, very careful, Rabbi, just like they said all those years ago. Well, good for you. I'm, I'm so glad that you've made it through healthy to this point. Um, too many people haven't, um, but so glad you have. I just want to close with this one thought that I encountered in this book that um, if you remember back to the story Rabbi Best told in her sermon on, which I don't remember if it was Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur this past year, she brought in the story from the Talmud of, um, the, of, a, of a rabbi and his son who were worried about being executed by the Romans. Um, and so they went into a cave and they studied Torah for 10 years, Rabbi Yochanan, uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai. And they, uh, I believe, yes, I think it's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And they go in a cave for 10 years and, they, and what do they do all day? They study Torah. Um, they leave the cave after 10 years because Eliyahu Anavi comes and uh, Elijah the prophet comes and tells them it's safe. They come out and after having studied Torah all day for 10 years, they see all these people doing mundane things like farming and eating and having fun and smiling. And, and they have like these lasers shoot out of their eyes because um, they say, what are you doing? Uh, you should be studying Torah. Like, why are you wasting your time in God's world doing these mundane things? You should be studying Torah. Um, and so they, they go back into their cave for, I think it's another year. And um, they come back out and then they're finally able to interact with the world. What's the message? Um, one of the takeaways, according to the rabbis, is um, it's never good to isolate yourselves from the community. Like, like so many communities now feel, um, and, and us, and we who have been isolated for so long, part of being Jewish is being in community. So um, to isolate yourselves, even for something that's probably one of the most important things, if not the most important thing in the Jewish tradition, which is studying Torah. Um, studying Torah, we get from this story, is not reason to isolate yourself from the community. Even if you're going to study Torah all day, that's no reason to set yourself apart from the community. The most important thing, essentially, you can do in Judaism, um, study Torah, you shouldn't do if it means you have to isolate. What's the only reason that's a legitimate reason to isolate yourself? Pekuach nefesh, to save a life. And that is what we've been doing this whole um, last year and a half. Certainly with uh, many of us making calculated uh, considerations about risk, but um, from our tradition, that is the most important thing that we can do is to save a life. And that decision, pekuach nefesh, to save a life, guides all of our other choices. So thank all of you for joining us tonight for a tour in a time of plague. I hope you'll join us next time in just a few weeks. Um, stay safe. Take care. Erev Tov.